Hello, and welcome to the Beauty Biz Show. Today, I had a special opportunity to spend some time interviewing Dr. Sonia Batra. She is the founder of a dermatology practice in Santa Monica, California, and she is the co-host of the CBS syndicated daytime talk show, The Doctors. Dr. Sonia Batra is a Harvard educated dermatologist. And it was really fun talking to her. We chatted about what it felt like the moment she found out she was accepted into Harvard right up until the recent studies of maybe what eczema and rosacea are linked to. So I know you're going to enjoy the show. I know you're going to love listening to her. She is such an intelligent and yet such a kind and generous woman. You're going to leave the show today feeling like you yourself are a better practitioner because of all the information that she shares. So stay tuned and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the beauty biz show. I'm your host, Lori Crete. I'm a licensed esthetician, spa owner, industry consultant, speaker, and journalist, and the founder of the Beauty Biz Club, which is the only professional success-based society designed to dramatically up your bookings, increase your profits, and provide you with industry-specific resources that are needed to succeed. If you'd like to know more about how you can become a member of the Beauty Biz Club, please visit beautybizclub.com. Now I invite you to join me as I feature inspirational messages from industry gurus and practical tips to tap into your best success. Stay tuned for some serious beauty biz entertainment. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Beauty Biz Show. This is your host, Lori Crete, and today I have a very special guest by the name of Dr. Sonia Batra. Dr. Sonia, how are you? I'm fine. Thanks, Lori. It's so great to chat with you. Thanks for having me on your show. Oh, I have been waiting all day long for this call or this podcast. I couldn't wait to get you on here and chat with you because not everybody knows, but we did an infomercial together this summer. Mm-hmm, exactly. It was such a pleasure. Thank you. It was great to work with you. And you too. And you know what? I, I'm like, gosh, she is so nice. And sometimes you're around these doctors and they're real serious and, and you were just a girl's kind of girl. So I've been excited to pick your brain and have you share with us as estheticians some of the things that, um, that I'm curious about. So first of all, what I would like to do is, I don't know if we chatted about this, but I actually lived in Boston as well. So you went to Harvard. Oh, that's right. When were you in Boston? I lived in Boston from, gosh, I think it was 91 to 95, six or seven oh years. Oh my gosh, we overlapped. I was there. I was in college there, 91 to 94. And then I went back from, two, uh, let's see, 96 to 2000. So we definitely overlapped in those four years. How lovely. You were probably on my flights in and out of there because I was a flight attendant at that time. And I flew a lot from LA to Boston. <laughs> I was almost certainly on your flight. That's so crazy because I took all of those nonstop American and United. I remember them well. Yeah, I flew um, for American. Oh my gosh. The red eye from LA to Boston? All the time. And I can't tell oh you what gosh. a dangerous driver I was on the ride home on those mornings after being up okay. all night long. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's three hours ahead and it's exhausting and Boston drivers are horrific anyway. Yes. <laughs> so I remember oh. driving there. It was crazy. Oh my gosh. How funny. I'm not going to lie. I got the middle finger a lot. I don't know if you experienced that with Boston drivers, but they were, they were Oh aggressive. yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> Deb, I think I think you haven't driven in Boston unless you've got the middle finger yeah. at least you know, <laughs> once a week or something. So it's it's definitely a different different world there. But I mean, it was amazing. It was a great experience to be a student. But driving is something else there. So. And on it, I mean, a more positive note, the food in Boston. Did you spend any time in the North End? Phenomenal. Yes, of course. No, the food there is is amazing. In fact, so much so that um, I used to moonlight at this practice. I, I went back there. I was an undergrad and a med student there. And then I went back as a fellow, which is like at the very end of, of your training. And so I already, you know, was like a grown up and I knew I was moving back to take a job in LA. And I tried to convince them to FedEx me calzones because there's a really famous pizza place in Berkeley called Zachary's. And my cousin who went there, apparently a lot of people fall in love with their pizza when they go to college there. And so they have a system where they'll actually FedEx you a frozen pizza. So I went into the place that I used to always get my calzone in Boston and tried to convince them that if they could just FedEx me frozen calzones, I could like set up this whole shipping method. I had like this whole plan. And they, didn't and they thought I was they, no, they thought I was crazy. They thought it was like the the like it, the place. I'll never forget it. It was called Andrea's, and they're amazing. Like shout out to Winchester, Massachusetts, if they're still there. I'm sure they are because they're all like family owned, old school Italian businesses. So I, I would imagine it was like 15 years ago, and I still remember. And I said, you know, there's this place in Berkeley, and they FedEx things frozen. And I was wondering if you'd be interested. And they just like looked at me. It was it was quite a memorable and quite a hilarious conversation. So I really do miss the food in Boston. It was phenomenal. And it was it was a great place to be. I mean, it was an incredible place to be a student for sure. I think, and that's what I kind of wanted to start talking to you about today. I just remember being in that area of Harvard and I swear there's this like, I call it an intelligence vortex, really magical area there. So just going back in time, do you remember, or could you tell me what it was like, where you were the moment you found out you were accepted to Harvard? Oh, I mean, it was it was a dream come true. I, I'm a local Southern California girl, so I went to school here in Pacific Palisades, and so I went to Palisades High School. And uh, it was this kind of almost like a like a shining castle on a hill. Like there there was this place in Boston, and it was this incredible moment when I found out I had gotten in. I was I was thrilled because it was you know coming from a big LA public school, it was definitely a leap to go there. But so I remember it was March of my senior year in high school. And uh, I will say that as lovely and amazing as it sort of seemed in theory, it was a little bit different to be sitting there as a girl who didn't even own a coat in my first uh, winter snowstorm in October of my freshman year. So that was a little bit of a rude awakening from a weather perspective. But I mean, it more than made up for it because it's an incredible place to be a student. Like you said, it's just so intellectual. There are people there who excel in so many different fields. And you really get to interact with these professors who are geniuses and and you just it's it's a phenomenal place to just go be a sponge and absorb everything you can from everyone from the faculty to the other people to the students it's it, it was really an honor and a privilege to be there i was really lucky but it was a pretty amazing moment when i found out cuz it had sort of seemed like a dream it didn't seem possible and i was thrilled thrilled when i got in very grateful and it, your family i'm sure they were feeling really proud Interesting. They they were proud of me. I think they realistically never thought I would go that far away because again, you grow up in in Southern California. The leap to at age I was seventeen when I went to college. Um, at that age to start crossing the country and living somewhere all on your own in a dorm, 
Um, we didn't have any family back east uh, in, in the Boston area. So there was no one who could kind of be like a local aunt or uncle who could kind of help supervise me. So I think to them, that was a little bit daunting. Like they were kind of more of the vein, like, yeah, we're really proud of you. That's great. But don't you want to just stay here? <laughs> and so, so that was more of a discussion than I necessarily anticipated. But obviously they came around and they were really supportive and, and happy for me when I went. You know, I had a lot of friends who moved from California to go to college in Boston and they never left. They loved it there. They got into the whole winter coat thing and, and <laughs> hibernating somewhat in the, in the winter. No, I, I believe it. And I loved it too. And I was so happy to stay for med school. I think for me, the only thing that, that was different is my family is all here on the West Coast. And by the time I was in my last year in Boston, I had already come back to California to do my residency training. And I had met my husband and we were married. And so I knew you know, that, that my place, he's from California as well. I knew I, I wanted to come back. But I think if, if I didn't have the family ties, it would have been amazing to stay there. I would have loved it. I've always found Harvard to be fascinating the whole and then I read I think it's Sean Aker's book about happiness where he took a lot of his research from Harvard so did you enjoy your time there or is it like he kind of and I guess talks about how a lot of students go into a depression because your whole life is studying um I you know I enjoyed it I I did study a lot I, I'm not gonna lie I certainly spent my fair bit of my fair share of time in the library but I also made some incredible friends there and I did a lot of extracurriculars when I was there, too. So I think that allowed me to meet people with common interests and also just got me out of the classroom and the library. So uh, I think I was really fortunate. I never I never succumbed to that. I think it is easy to get so intensely involved in your subject there because you have the depth and you have the breadth of people who can instruct you. But I was lucky that I had enough outside interests that I, I think I kept a reasonable balance there. I, and we're going to talk about your balance in your life in a little bit, because you seem like you're probably the busiest woman I've ever met. But I, first I want to know, <laughs> I think you're the busiest one I've ever met, Lori. I'm not sure about that. So. You know, I don't have children though. So I have to say like my business is my baby, but I can't half the time. I don't find time to walk my dog in the morning. I don't know how moms do it. Seriously. I think all women do what they have to do. So like I have yet to meet a woman who didn't have X number of things on her plate, who didn't figure out a way to get it done. So I, th I think that's just how women are. I will agree with you. We're adaptable for sure. And yeah. we figure out a way. Absolutely. So I want to know, I'm curious, why Derm? What made you go into Derm? Was there another choice after that? Or how did that all play out? Oh, specifically as a, as a specialty, I just thought it was by far the most fun mix of medicine and surgery because there are a lot of really interesting skin cancer procedures and other procedures we do in dermatology. And I loved that you could see everything from a newborn baby to a 105-year-old patient. You see men, you see women. And I think in dermatology, more so than a lot of other medical fields, that there's a lot of continuity. So I really like the connection that I make with my patients. I think estheticians make really strong connections with their clients as well. And you get to know them over time. You love meeting them and chatting with them. And you kind of grow up together. You hear about their families. You hear about their lives. Um, when I went through the rotation, I didn't. I come from a very medical family, so medicine was a natural choice for me. My mom and my dad are both doctors, but we're all different specialties, and no one in my family was a dermatologist. And when I rotated through, it was that aha moment where I felt like the people were like-minded people in terms of my mentors in medical school. 
and just the mix of everything I got to do, it just really suited me. And, and I was really lucky because it's, it's a choice you make based on very limited information as a medical student in terms of what specialty to choose. But, um, but it's been an incredible field and it's, it's only grown and just blossomed as I've been in it already in the last, I guess, 15 years or so. What, so what does your practice look like? Cause you actually, I know people think you're just on TV, but you have a practice in Santa Monica. You see patients. What, what is your main specialty in your practice? Um, I mean, we do everything under the umbrella of dermatology. So yeah, I have a full-time practice and, uh, try to balance as much as I can uh, co-hosting the doctor show, which is also fantastic and a great dovetail in terms of staying fresh and aware and up to date in terms of everything going on in medicine. But my actual medical practice is exactly what you might expect. It's a Monday through Friday uh, seeing anything that kind of falls under dermatology. So that includes full body skin checks, eczema, psoriasis, acne, you know, the medical side. We do a lot of cosmetic procedures as well. So just things for anti-aging from injectables to lasers to peel. And then um, certainly my fellowship training after my residency was in skin cancer. So once a week, I'll just do a whole day of skin cancer procedures uh, because sadly, they're really common in Southern California. I have a lot of patients who need that. Well, one of the reasons I was so excited to chat with you is we had a conversation about some of the things you just touched on, one of them being skin cancer. And I had told you, I think send people to a derm all the time as an esthetician. So what would an esthetician, it's out of our scope to diagnose anything, but you told me, gosh, I get great referrals from estheticians. So what would you tell estheticians to look for something that may be a sign of caution to suggest that they see a dermatologist? Absolutely. So I I did say that because estheticians are such incredible eyes and ears and resources for us as dermatologists because you see our clients and patients so much more regularly and you're looking at them closely. I mean, you're doing the facial treatments, you're looking at them for a sustained amount of time. And so what I always tell people to look for is a pimple or a sore that doesn't heal. So if something is there and you see it for more than a month, like the first time someone comes in and they say, oh, it's just a blemish. And then you see them a month later for their facial and it's still there. That can sometimes be a red flag. Something that the client will tell you is crusting or bleeds episodically, like, oh, I went out of my shower and then it started oozing or bleeding a little bit, or I tried to dry off with a towel and it's, I saw some blood on the towel. Um, that's often a worrisome sign. And then in terms of moles, like anything that you're seeing that's changing in color or shape, like you've seen it for a long time and it was kind of a crisp, well demarcated brown spot, and now suddenly it's more dark or jagged or irregular, um, obviously warrants attention too. So because in general, and, and I don't want to make this super boring, but there are kind of two categories of things to watch for. The non-melanoma type of category, which are basal cell and squamous cell, which are super common, um, most common type of cancer of any type in the United States, which are all the kind of scaly, pearly type spots. And then the more pigmented spots, which although they're much more rare, are much more deadly. So those are the ones that are changing in color and shape and brown and irregular. I just, you know, I sold, right when I met you, I had sold my spa in Los Angeles and I'm renting space in a medical office. And I was fascinated. The stuff I've been learning has been just making me, I know, a better esthetician. But he, I sent a client into the doctor and he said, well, this is a red spot and you have to be careful because cancer often likes blood. And I didn't know that, like a pink pimple. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And so many skin cancers will set up their own blood supply. That's kind of how they grow. Yeah. I had no idea. So it's just something maybe that looks like a, and he said, if you see raised on the top, it's usually twice as large underneath. 
It can be, certainly. Sometimes we, we call that sort of the tip of the iceberg or the roots of the tree, where by the time you see something becoming more and more raised at the top, it may have pretty extensive spread under the surface. I'll never forget, when I, even before I was an esthetician, I was reading Cosmopolitan magazine, and it was a gal who talked about having skin cancer, and her esthetician had tried popping this pimple for like five years. Yeah, yeah, a couple months into it, when it's not popping, it probably warranted a little more, yeah. more investigation at that point. I'll never forget the story. It freaked me out a little bit. So I'm probably hypersensitive when my client has something that's been around for a few months. You know, I have this online business academy for estheticians and I went in there this morning. These are really successful estheticians. And I said, what? I have this great opportunity to do an interview with a Harvard educated dermatologist. What do you want me to ask her? And you're not going to believe what one of, well, maybe you will, the most common questions they wanted answered. How do we partner up with a dermatologist? So I know you said you get great referrals from estheticians. How did you form these partnerships? Were they clients of yours or, you know, how would you, how would you send somebody to an esthetician and build that relationship? Sure. Well, I think I think there's sort of two parts to that question. One is that many dermatologists work with estheticians directly in their office. So obviously that's the most direct way to right. form a relationship is to work like you are within a medical office. Um, but I think the most flattering and lovely referrals I get are from people who are estheticians themselves and come in as patients, and then they refer their clients after the fact. And in fact, one of the estheticians who uh, is is my patient and has known me from, I think, when I started my practice a decade ago, uh, came in and sadly has had a, a couple skin cancers herself. So she is such a vigilant, incredible watchdog for all of her clients because now she knows all the signs. And when she does see something that looks irregular or problematic, she, she'll give out my business card directly and just say, you need to go see her. Please go get it checked. Um, so I think that's one way is if you go see someone yourself as a patient and you like them and you like their style and they seem reasonable and and are you know happy to collaborate with you, then I I would just get to know them that way. But I think I wish there were better bridges in terms of just, you know, people meeting each other in more of a networking uh, situation between dermatology and estheticians, because I think that we have a lot of common ground. Exactly. We certainly cover a lot of the same fields, and I, I just don't, I don't have some other informal mechanism like that. But most of my referral sources are, are people who are actually my patients, but they are also estheticians by their own trade. Um, but I, I think it would be nice, like you said, if there were like an online network or something where people who are happy to collaborate could all um, have a, a, a consortium. That'd be amazing. Yeah. And it, it is probably through referrals, but gosh, maybe that is missing in our industry where we could co-partner because I never got better results in my spa in LA when I partnered up with a derm and an endocrinologist. They would send them to me to clean the skin, give them the products and I would send them to them for all the other stuff. So there's so many skin issues. And this is another question that I want to ask you about. Do you see skin cancer, first of all, on the rise with all the retinoids and, and retinols and all the crazy things that we're, we're doing to our skin and maybe overly aggressive with the topicals? 
Uh, that's a great question. I, I don't think necessarily the incidence has gone up specifically from products. Like I, I think to your point, using retinoids, which are light sensitizing, and then people misusing them and going out and getting burned. I have to say, I, I don't necessarily think that that's increasing the incidence. I think the problem is that people's habits have changed so much because people spend so much more time outside. Uh, our leisure activities all involve sun exposure nowadays, or, or maybe the younger generation, there'll be some some back of the pendulum because the interesting thing that I see in my kids' generation now is a tendency to get away from outside activities and just to sit inside glued to screens. <laughs> um, so I, sometimes I think about that and I think, wow, the blue light from a screen, that's not carcinogenic. Maybe they'll have less skin cancer in their, gener- in their generation. Um, I bet but- you're right. It's just a thought because I know our generation was there was a huge peak where now you weren't stuck in a place where there was no sun in the winter. Now you can go to Hawaii or Mexico or a really, really sunny place wherever you happen to live. Leisure activities became outdoor activities like golf and tennis and skiing and water skiing and you know things where there's a lot of reflection of ultraviolet. Um, and then I think the corollary just environmentally is that the ozone layer has become thinner in many metropolitan areas. And so there's less ultraviolet being absorbed at the ozone layer. So more reaches the surface of the earth. And that's just because the air quality is, has become more poor and there's a lot more pollution. So um, I, I think that's a lot of it when we talk about the true rapid increase in incidence of skin cancer. I think it's exposure habits plus a thinner ozone layer. But I'm curious, I think we won't know for 50 plus years, but if this generation of kids were all on screens, I wonder if they may get less skin cancer because they're not outside playing the way my generation was. Oh, my mom used to say to me, go outside and play. That's all, you know, if you ever complain about being bored or, and we didn't even have sunblock done. So you're right. It's a totally different world that the children nowadays are living in. I don't even see kids playing outside in my neighborhood. It's it's really sad. I yeah. mean, this part of it is everybody's afraid, right? And that's a whole separate topic because mm-hmm. you know you you worry if you don't drop your kid exactly wherever they're going that they might get abducted or some horrible fate will be, you know befall them. Versus, yeah, our parents used to say, "Go ride your bike there, <laughs> go walk down the street." You know that that kind of independence was truly encouraged. So sometimes I just wonder, yeah, how generationally all these things are going to impact health of our next generation. It's really interesting. Well, you're going to laugh at me or you're going to agree with me. And I'm okay either way because I like having this girl talk. I have noticed something. I think that we are changing the way our whole body forms. I've noticed millennials, a lot of millennials don't even really have a neck anymore. (laughs) I feel like it's because they're always looking down down. at their phone or their computer. Like that's one of the first things I do now. I try to open Mm -hmm. up the neck area when I start a facial because they feel like, oh my goodness. It's changing the way their bodies form. I think, I mean, I think you're right. I'm not going to laugh at you because (laughs) I also see an epidemic of women coming in for those horizontal, what we used to call necklace lines on their neck, Uh where you get these deep creases horizontally across your neck. And now we call that tech neck, T-E-C-H neck. And it's just because everybody is looking down at their devices all day. So, so yeah, I I think, I don't know if the way the neck is forming is going, is changing truly, but certainly the lines and the creases and the way we use it and therefore kind of the anatomic the positioning is definitely changing because of that. I was watching a reality show and there were these millennial gorgeous girls, but their jawline's not as defined as it used to be. And it was of all different, you know, ancestries, races, everything. So I go, oh, they need to hold their phone up higher when they're on it. 
But something else I want to talk to you, speaking of trends, this was something that occurred to me this morning. You know, micropigment, the eyebrows, tattooing, it's really a hot trend mm-hmm. in the beauty world right now. Yeah. And I've seen so many horrible jobs. Is there a laser that removes these mess ups? Uh, there is, it, it, but it depends on the composition of the tattoo ink. So, so that's the really tricky one is that a lot of cosmetic tattoos have certain pigments in them like zinc oxide and ferrous oxide. Those are things that by very bad luck, if they're in there and you put the intensity of a laser on them, they will oxidize and they'll turn black. And so you've probably heard or seen like situations where someone had like a really off lip liner, like a permanent yeah. cosmetic tattoo to do their lip. And then someone tries to laser it and then it turns dark black. Um, what that is, is that the eye Iron in that cosmetic tattoo actually oxidizes from the heat of the laser and then it turns black. So that's actually terrible because that's really hard to get rid of. So, so the problem is you have to know what the cosmetic tattoo is made of. If it doesn't have those, then absolutely you can use any pigment-directed tattoo laser and just blast them out and you'll shatter the pigment particles and someone's immune system will go back in there. But, but it's tricky because a lot of times people don't really know what's in their cosmetic tattoos. Are you seeing more and more of that, like corrective work? Yeah. And in fact, I always do a test spot because the laser I have to remove tattoos is called the PicoSure, and it's a good laser, but it still is a tremendous heat source and, and it'll do that if, if it's the, you know, it's that composition. Yeah. I keep seeing these horrible mistakes online and I think estheticians listening in would like to know what to do if for some reason they mess up on a client. Hey, it happens to the best of us, right? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. It's called a what laser, Pico? Well, what we have is a Pico sure, and we really like it. But again, it, it can still probably have that same risk with the zinc oxide and with the, with the iron-based cosmetic tattoos. So maybe trying to avoid doing tattoos. Like if you're at all worried about something going awry, avoiding those pigments will then make it sort of foolproof that if God forbid it does need laser removal, it's not going to be a problem. Yeah. It's, that's something I, I do not want anything to do with that. I like doing my just lovey facials. <laughs> my clients make yeah. me feel good. This is a whole new practice for me. My clientele in the desert is very, very different than it was in Los Angeles. And it, I have been touching what literally feels like leather skin. Is there any way, anything that you know of to reverse that on somebody? Like how can you kind of get the youth and the elasticity back or are they just kind of got to go from here and maybe protect it from, you know, this point forward? Well, I think they're leathery just because they have so much sun damage, right? Yeah. Seriously, now I know what people mean by leathery skin. It feels like leather in my hands. Yeah. I mean, I think... I, you guys are the masters of the at-home regimen, so estheticians, you know, using retinols and using antioxidants and really excellent sunscreen, I think on a day-to-day basis is the best way to promote cell turnover and kind of improve the texture. But in terms of procedures that actually would help that, I, I love my fractional CO2 laser. It's an ablative laser that basically takes off the top layer of the skin, but because it's such a great heat source, it just stimulates a lot more remodeling over the 6 to 12 months after the procedure. So for someone with really severe, leathery, photo-damaged skin, and we're just looking for something that's going to help rewind it, that's that's my favorite tool. That's funny. That's what my friend Jane, she's an incredible esthetician in Las Vegas, and she said, ask her what the most effective treatments are for skin rejuvenation, and especially about the CO2 laser. So is there Mm -hmm. anything else, you know, for skin rejuvenation that you find to be really effective right now? 
Well, I think the the laser like that is amazing. That's an ablative laser, meaning it takes off the top layer of the skin. Um, for someone with really severe sun-damaged, texture-changed skin, and so the problem is that is going to give them a good 7 to 10 days of downtime if you really do it properly and you're waiting for it to slough and to heal. There are a whole armamentarium, like a whole kind of new subset of lasers so that we consider to be non-ablative, meaning they don't actually take off the top layer of the skin, but they will kind of help in a lighter way slough it and then also kind of encourage some remodeling under the surface. And I'll tell my patients if they don't have the downtime for the CO2 or for a fractional, then those lasers, which often use like radio frequency or a combination of microneedles and radio frequency, those work pretty well. You just have to do a few of them. I just got to go in and watch the doctor do a fractional laser the other day, and that was pretty fascinating. Now I want to get one of those. Have you had one? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, I love devices. I'm a gadget girl. So we had quite a few lasers in our practice. In fact, a while ago, some consultant came in and looked at my practice and, you know, was trying to give me strategic recommendations. And one of his bits of advice was that I had too many lasers. And I was like, but I use them and I like them. So he said, okay, fair enough. You can keep your toys. But, um, but yeah, we, we've had a, a, you know, kind of slew of different kind of small, medium, large lasers for the last nine plus years. And, uh, and we love them. We use them. I call it getting caught up in the bright, shiny object syndrome, which is very easy to do when you work in the anti-aging beauty world. But if you you can afford them and you're using them, there's nothing wrong with it, right? Completely, but do your research. So, so the one thing I, I have been fairly fortunate is that I don't think I've ever bought like an expensive coat rack, like I've really sussed out the devices and, and tried to make sure there's data behind them and that I'm comfortable with them and I understand how they work before I, before I either lease or buy them. Because I think, I think you're right. There's so many bright, shiny objects. And, and I feel like every day someone comes into your office and tries to promise you a magic wand. And you just have to be so, so careful and so critical of what they're telling you before you invest in it. Because it's it's hard finding devices that work well. When you find them, they're gold. But when you just get feel like you've been conned by a sales pitch, then that's a terrible feeling. Yeah, and it's hard to sell something when you feel like that to get the return on your investment. And I, this is actually probably where being on the show The Doctors is helpful. That's where you're learning a lot about these awesome gadgets, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I've learned a lot on this show. I also just love stuff like that. So I like reading about it. I'm always very interested in journals and what's coming up in the pipeline. Uh, but it is true the Doctors is an incredible platform because all these companies want their products to be featured on the show, so they'll often come there first. And so that's actually been really interesting for me, trying to, to separate a sh- you know, a, a device that has a publicist that wants to yeah. have it featured versus what actually works. And, you know, it's sometimes a little hard to discern if someone's coming on, you know, for a four minute segment and they're trying to show you these photos that probably are photoshopped and, you know, to be really rigorous about it and figure out what's legitimate. I feel like that's the problem with my clientele. They're coming in and they're asking, well, what about this? What about this? Cause they're seeing all these things on TV. And I'm like, you're just buying marketing. A lot of this is marketing. It's true. Yeah. I want to know my dream job was to be on something like the talk or one. I would have loved to have been a journalist or interviewing like Barbara Walters that it's so fun. But did you go seeking the opportunity to be on the doctors or did it actually find you? I was incredibly fortunate because it found me and I, I, 
am more of a traditional button-down doctor. So as I said, I have a, I have a full-time practice and I love it and I love seeing patients every day. Uh, I was incredibly fortunate because uh, originally the doctors needed me for a segment that had to do with a patient. And, um, and so I came and I gave my opinion on that. And then one of one segment led to another. And originally I was only going and doing dermatology segments. And then when the opportunity arose to try and be a co-host, then I filled in a couple times and it worked out well. And so now I guess I've been co-hosting for three seasons and we're just about to go into season 12. So that'll be my fourth season as a co-host. It'll be amazing. Well, you guys look like you have fun on the show. So we do there. I mean, the one thing that's amazing is it's a really fantastic panel of doctors and people, everyone from Dr. Travis Stork, who's the host of the show. It's his show. He created it. And Drew Orden, who started the show with Travis, and they've been there all 11 seasons so far. Um, you know, they're amazing. They're really smart. They're funny. They've kind of been doing it long enough, so they're really comfortable. And then Nita Landry, who started co-hosting around the same time I did, she's great. She's funny, and she offers a totally different perspective, and I love working with her, too. So so we do have fun. It's, it's, a, it's a nice group of people. Now, were you nervous when you first started doing it? But with all those cameras in front of you, it makes you feel like a different person. At least that's been my experience when I've done stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think you ever go up in front of a live audience with a whole bunch of cameras and bright lights in your face and feel like, wow, this is really normal. <laughs> you know, like it, it definitely is kind of a daunting experience. But as you know, I mean, Laura, you've done so much stuff in front of the camera. It gets easier every time you you, know, you start to feel much more comfortable. And, and the reason I was saying is it's such a great group of co-hosts is that also makes it for me much more comfortable because it's like going up and having conversations with them about these medical topics. And that's super fun for me because I don't necessarily get that in my day-to-day practice because all of my day-to-day practice is dermatology and this is often subjects that I haven't thought about or had an opinion about in 20 years since I was in medical school so it's super fun to revisit it's it's great to hear what's going on in the field of medicine overall now I imagine and this is something that's going to help a lot of women out there when they came to you with this opportunity was the first thing that entered your mind oh my goodness I don't have time how am I ever going to yes. make this work? Yeah, of course. Well, that still sometimes happens when they, when there's a so for me because I have the day job, I have my practice. You know, this happens all the time where they might need a pickup or they might want to add a segment in, and then it, it ends up saying like, "Hey, can you come Monday at noon and film this incredible workout segment with the celebrity trainer who we want to drop into one of the shows." That's really hard because I think most of us are just so busy and medicine, it's not as flexible. I'm not a full-time TV person. So if I have patients on my books who've been on for weeks or months, they're not going to appreciate it if I have to cancel because, you know, this just arose and I need to be over at the studio. So yeah, it's, it's hard making time and, and trying to do right by everyone for sure. When do you, you guys film in Burbank? Is that where the studio is? Uh no, actually, we film in West Hollywood. We film at Paramount. Oh, okay. And well, gosh, that can still be a two-hour drive in LA traffic from Santa Monica. It can be. Knock on wood. I'm I'm lucky because I'm in Santa Monica, so it's a straight shot on on the ten freeway. But it, it certainly has been an hour in each direction on occasion, for sure. I always tell people if I have any wrinkles on my face, it's due to the LA freeways. 
that was like one of the reasons I had to leave there. I couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> the traffic can be, yeah. yeah, the traffic can be overwhelming. Yeah. The one thing I've done though, which is crazy is, uh, you know, I'm a dermatologist. I have the film on my windows that filters ultraviolet. And I highly, highly recommend that because then you're not just sitting there in traffic stressing out because you're also getting all that ultraviolet radiation. My staff gave me an SPF 50 scarf when I drove back and forth from Palm Springs to LA all the time. And that was like one of the most excited. That's a great I, present. Yeah, yeah, it really was a great gift. You should sell them in your lobby. <laughs> like <Yeah>. people. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good idea, actually. That's great. So, um, I want to know, because everyone, again, I said, what do you girls want me to ask? I have all these successful estheticians. And one of the jokes always is between us that every derm we know recommends Cetaphil and they want to know why. Do you actually sell products in your lobby or like that are are professional or do you just tell them? Because I assume you're a doctor, you're busy. Products are not something you want to focus on. You're helping people live from a skin cancer bout. Right. And, and I mean, so we do have products, but mostly they're products that I just think are really well formulated, like are probably the primary things we offer are sunscreens because I'm sort of a fanatic about mineral-based zinc or titanium SPF 30 sunscreens. And I think people get a little overwhelmed when they walk into the pharmacy about having to look at ingredients and products. Um, also, a lot of my patients like me are olive-toned. So it's I have sunscreens that are lightly tinted in my, in my front, in my lobby. So people like that because it's harder to find the more cosmetically elegant sort of makeup-based type sunscreens as opposed to just the really white Casper the Coast ones. That, that right. seem so so easy to find. Um, so so for us, yeah, products aren't like a huge part of the practice, but we like offering things just because people ask and they like the convenience. If if there's like a you know fifteen dollars sunscreen that's not expensive but it's really well formulated, it's nice for them to be able to pick it up. But yes, all dermatologists seem to recommend Cetaphil. Uh, <laughs> I personally like Cerave, but in the same supermarket aisle, it's it's just that we're sort of fanatic about just scent-free, dye-free, hypoallergenic products. And one thing that I find that a lot of my patients, and I'm sure a lot of your clients are doing right now, is they're sort of equating organic with hypoallergenic. And so they're coming in with these really expensive plant-based products that are probably well-formulated, but they also are often really allergenic. And so I often tell people, like, well, just because it's organic doesn't mean it's not going to give you a rash. You know, poison ivy is organic. And then this light bulb goes up. It's like, oh, yeah, just because it's plant-based doesn't mean it's necessarily really good for my skin. It really does matter how it's formulated and, and the scents and the dyes and a lot of products can be irritating. So that's, that's why dermatologists are all sort of obsessed with things that are very gentle, like Cetaphil, CeraVe, Delvin scented, you know, things like that, that uh, we know aren't, aren't going to inflame people or trigger rashes as likely. So it's more about what's not in them than what is exactly. in them. Yeah, that exactly. makes sense. Yeah. I have a trick, by the way, and you may already know this, but if not, it's going to help a lot of your, your patients. I too sell the mineral-based like lightly tinted SPFs with just zinc and titanium in them. And what I found is if they'll put them in their fingers and warm them up and then press them into their skin, it looks like an airbrush makeup. They love it. It's when you try to rub them in that they just sit on top and they kind of look chalky. So you can, you can tell all your clients that and they'll think you're now a makeup artist. No, too. I will credit you, but that's genius. I love that tip for yeah, sure. You, you have oh, to warm great. them up and then they just seem to absorb right into the pore and they make the skin look flawless. That's great. That's good advice. For the listeners 
Dr. Buckter is actually at her office, took a break to educate us. I know you're busy and in a hurry. I have like two more questions and then I'm going to let you get back to your, your clients. Thank you. But, it, but to, for the record, and I'm happy to answer the questions, Lori, it's my pleasure. And I really appreciate you asking me to do this. So, oh, yeah. so please so... don't feel like you're taking something out of my day. It's, I'm happy to chat with you. I just so appreciate you being here because it means a lot to me. And I think just your words are, are, are what seems like a simple conversation is going to empower a lot of women. It's not every day we get to hear the the voice and the brain behind, like I said, a Harvard-educated dermatologist. And I want you to know I really appreciate it. Thank you. Back to the questions, and then I'm going to let you go. Okay. Rosacea eczema. Do you think that a lot of it is related to diet? I feel like more and more people are really now starting to associate the gut with this type of skin disruption. Yeah, I think I think that's one of the hottest areas in research in dermatology right now is the skin gut microbiome relationship. So we do know that the the normal bacteria that populate our gut and our skin. So everywhere on the body we have this microbiome, right? We're coexisting with all of these amazing <laughs> synergistic bacteria. And so we do feel like when you have more of a leaky gut and more inflammation diffusely, it certainly can impact your skin. And there's a lot of really interesting research in that right now. Rosacea, we've known for a long time, has a number of dietary triggers like but in, in the sense that we were always thinking about dietary triggers for rosacea, we were thinking about things that open up your blood vessels or make you flush. Uh, things like red wine and spicy foods that are vasodilators certainly carry those inflammatory chemicals to the surface of the skin um, easier in, in conditions like rosacea. But I agree with you with atopic dermatitis or eczema, we're learning a lot more about how there's a link between allergies, specifically food allergies, eczema and asthma. And we know that all of these kind of allergic inflammatory conditions are intimately connected and one can certainly feel the other. So is there really anything that you've seen? I don't like to use the word fix, but for lack of a better word or term, is there anything that can fix these conditions topically or is it really, you got to clean it up and it's kind of a multi approach Well, I think it is a multi-approach, but I think something for both rosacea and eczema that works well is always kind of focusing back on the fact that the skin is meant to be a barrier and using topicals that restore the barrier function of the skin. And what I mean by that is that every organ in your body has a function. So your lungs are designed to breathe, your heart is designed to pump, and your skin is really as an organ's function is designed to be a wall that keeps the, the world out, right? Because we're always in contact with bacteria and fungus and viruses, and your skin is meant to see you against them. So the more irritating and abrasive things you do that break down the barrier, the more prone your skin is to have a lot of irritants and intruders coming into it, which is going to cause a lot of inflammation. So vis-a-vis the topicals, in my practice, some of the things that I found to be really successful are, as we were talking about earlier, kind of going back to the basics, scent-free, dye-free, non-irritating products, and things that are really well formulated with, say, ceramides and free fatty acids and hyaluronic acid, all those building blocks of the outer layer of the skin, sort of the glue that keeps the skin cells together, those often help restore the barrier. And then as a corollary, they help decrease inflammatory conditions. So yeah, when the barrier is protected, it allows a, a healing environment, so to speak. Yeah. And then the skin can do its job. When the outside world is kept out, then you have a lot less irritants and potential infections, you know, infectious agents, things coming in that trigger then more inflammation. So you're, you're sealing it and keeping the outside world out. 
I know, you know, I have a friend who's a doctor in Colorado and he swears there are just certain segments of the United States where they're seeing more of the rosacea and the eczema. And he thinks it's just some environmental stuff like more chlorine and water and that type of thing as well. Yeah. And, and so again, those, the more harsh kind of chemicals that your skin may be coming in contact with, the more likely it is to disrupt the barrier. That's true. And then I think the secondary thing is if it's something like chlorine, it may even be disrupting, as you mentioned, that microbiome, you know, that bacterial balance that Mm -hmm. probably plays a huge role in keeping things intact as well. That really is one of the first things I recommend when I see all kinds of skin disruptions going on. I'm like, are you on a good enzyme and probiotic? Because that can change everything. Yeah, in fact, it's it's true, and that's a very hot area of research right now in the skin world as well as, as I'm sure you know. So that's really interesting, like which strains of probiotics are more helpful in terms of decreasing the incidence of eczema and decreasing the incidence of inflammatory skin conditions. Well, I want to kind of wind down today with just a few things. For those of you listening in, you have a practice, you have co-hosting this great show the doctors. You have a husband, two children. And I love how you mentioned a Havanese. You even have, you mentioned your dog as part of your family, which as a huge animal lover, I, I, I like that. It made me smile. <laughs> my dog was the first baby. <laughs> she is my first child. I know that sounds nuts, but, but she is a part of our family. My kids sometimes say I love her more than I love them. I'm not a hundred percent sure about the answer to that one. So. <laughs> how old are your children? My daughter's 11 and my son is nine. They're awesome. Okay. So they're getting to the point where they're somewhat independent. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they're not not quite there yet, but I feel like when they're there, that's going to be sad because then they won't need me and I'll miss them. So it's kind of a nice sweet spot right now where they still like being around me. They still need me. You know, it's, it's, they're not quite teenagers yet, but they're not in diapers and they're potty trained and, you know, they can brush their teeth and take showers and stuff like that. So it's a, it's a nice window. I asked you this when we were together and I am excited for you to share. How do you find the balance to do it all? If you had to give advice to somebody who's just struggling because they feel like, oh my goodness, I have no time at all to do anything that I want to do. Well, I think part of it is women feel like they have to do everything and be everything for everyone. And so I don't do it all. I really don't, Lori. I I do a number of things. And when I'm doing them, I think the one bit of advice I could give is whatever you're doing at any given moment, be present in it. Mm-hmm. And I know we say that a lot. That's sort of like a buzzword right now about being mindful and present and things like that. And I don't, I, I'm not trying to make it in a new age way. I'm saying just like when you're with your kids, be with your kids. Focus on them. Don't look at your phone. Don't be thinking about other things. Hear what they did during the day. When you're, when I'm at work, I thankfully, you know, have the comfort of knowing my kids are at a good school that my nanny can pick them up from school, so I'm not under a tremendous amount of pressure to finish. And when I'm at work, I'm focusing on my work. And then, with the show, it's the same type of thing. I try to organize so that I can sort of compartmentalize. And so I don't do everything, but when I'm doing what I'm doing, I'm trying to really make sure I've optimized everything else so that I can focus on what I have to be doing at that moment. That is good advice. And I guess I didn't tell you I was going to ask you this question, but I'm going to throw one on you. So if you need a second to think, that's fine. But what do you indulge in for self-care? What makes you feel like, okay, I can, I can do this, not feel guilty about it. And it's a little bit of a luxury that makes me feel better. Mm, I think there's two things in terms of 
like kind of day-to-day self-care, I like to work out. So for me, that is kind of an indulgence. Like that's my sacrosanct. Like my, my morning regimen is I get my kids up with my husband. We get them ready. I'll drop them to school. And then I don't start seeing patients until an hour after I drop my kids at school, which affords me a good 45-minute workout in the morning. And that's great for me. That's like my me time. I don't allow my staff to schedule anyone <laughs> during that window, whatever it might be. I'd rather work through lunch, but, but I want to get my workout in in the morning. So, so I kind of guard that time. And I, it took me a while to get to that point where I wouldn't let other things encroach on that because that was like my sanity time. So that's, that's one thing. And then purely on like a, an indulgent personal level is I'm a big fiction reader. Like I love novels and I love to read. So it's some type of thing when I'm reading, like I do that before I go to bed a lot at night. I just like, that's my me time. And I, I don't take calls. I put my phone on do not disturb. And, and that's like my little window for myself too. I was just reading something by Mel Robbins. I don't know if you've ever read her. She's kind of a self-help Ted talk no. gal, uh-huh. but she okay. said, take your phone and just put it in your closet at night. You don't need it by your bed. And I'm going to start doing that. I think that's really good advice. Cause yeah. I think part of it is part of the reason we feel frazzled all the time is we don't ever disconnect. Like it's, it's one of those things that we feel like is the moment someone texts us or the moment you get that buzz of the email that you have to reply that second. But you know, you don't like if, if there's something else that's a high priority right then and there. I mean, it's, if it's important, like if one of my patients is bleeding, okay, yeah. then I'm going to reply. <laughs> but, but if it's, if it's a non-urgent matter, I don't, I no longer feel guilty about just waiting till the next morning to answer it. And, and I think that's really liberating. I think it's a great idea to put your phone in your closet if you're ready to focus on something else. I got annoyed with Instagram the other night and I'm like, this is not Instagram's fault. It's yours. Just put your phone down. You don't need to be focusing on this right now. So to walk away sometimes is so powerful and just let yourself let your turn your brain off a little bit and get lost in somebody else's life or a book or something. And, and it's healthier, I think. I think, too, because one thing and, and I'll stop about Instagram, but I think sometimes with social media, too. What's challenging is though you feel really connected to people, it's sort of like this idealized version of their life that doesn't exist. You know, people are posing and filtering and, you know, kind of like real life is sort of messy and hard. And sometimes it's really easy to feel like your life isn't great because you're comparing it with this like idealized stream that you're seeing of other people. So I think that's even more important or really more essential why you should just put it away. Because I think there's study after study now coming out that the more you use social media, the more depressed you're likely to be. Well, you really are seeing somebody else's highlight reel. Yeah. And because nobody puts, because honestly, nobody puts like a picture of themselves the morning or maybe very few people do like after your kid was sick and you were up all night and then you overslept and then you're running late for work and you burn breakfast, you know, like that's sadly, that is reality sometimes, but nobody ever puts that up on their stream. Well, have you read Girl, Wash Your Face? I think it's Rachel Hollis. No, I haven't read that. You write that down. You're, you probably think it's, she tells the truth about being <laughs> a mom and, and trying to run a business and people are loving that book. Oh, wow. No, I'll have to pick it up. That sounds perfect. And she does her Instagram lives in her pajamas with like her kid with his nose running, sitting on her lap. And it's actually quite humorous. <laughs> I like That's it. really funny. So That's I'm going to let you get back to work. But one more, I asked you this, if you could create a superpower product or a beauty tool, did you have time to think about what that would be? I did. I did. I said I thought it was a great question actually. So, <laughs> so superpower product. I think one of the things I find most challenging to treat is melasma. Yeah. And so 
the the thing when which I know your listeners because they're all estheticians know is a hyperpigmentation or discoloration that occurs usually in sun exposed areas from genetics and hormones and ultraviolet exposure. Um, but what's really really hard about it is that even if you fade the color, it almost always comes back. Yeah. It's a sort of constant maintenance challenge, and. Interestingly, more so than any other skin condition, pigmentary issues around the world are just this most common concern. Like it's one thing that sort of unites everybody no matter where they're from and different skin types and ethnic types. So to your question, if I could invent one super skincare product or device, it would be something to cure melasma because it's the one thing that in my practice I find though I can make it better, I have a very, very hard time clearing. Yeah, it is constant battle. And it doesn't matter what, you know, your Fitzpatrick is. It's, it's something you're right that once you have it, it's probably going to pop up again and again and again. So I'm glad to hear a doctor say that it's a struggle in her practice as well. Cause I feel like, oh my God, do I just not have the right power tools? No, no, because I mean, even really good lasers are good heat sources. And so heat is a big trigger of melasma yeah. too. So, so it's challenging. It's, it's, it's one of those things that even when someone gets better and they're ecstatic, I, I'm always just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. <laughs> and I always try to tell them, look, it's going to come back. You have to maintain. And so uh, that would be if I could invent a product or a way to fix that, I think it would help. Really, it would be kind of a universal tool for a lot of women with their skincare concerns. Well, just, you probably have a lot of estheticians out there now going, whew, she just took some pressure off me. <laughs> yeah. Knowing that it's, it's not an easy fix. Okay. One more question. Success tip for anyone out there that really just is trying to make it happen. Success tip. It's not really a sexy tip, but I'll tell you, my tip would be do your homework. It's, it's just, it's, when you're running a business or starting a business, you have to, especially as a woman, really make sure you know what you're getting into. And if that entails hiring a really good support team of an accountant and a lawyer and you know people who can help facilitate that, it's well worth it. Because I think that women especially, we try very hard to be nice. And sometimes that's at the expense of negotiation. And we, you know, kind of make decisions not as much like when I was starting my practice, I probably should have dotted more I's and crossed more T's about even just the business of running a practice. Um, I didn't even know what a profit and loss sheet was when I applied for a small business loan. So I, I think that doing your homework, you just have to put in the time and, and assemble the key facts that you need to run your business. And that's what's going to then pay off in dividends. It's just going to pay off in spades if you do it, especially from the outset. The the more informed you are from the beginning, the better it goes as you go forward. Nobody's ever given that tip before. And I'm a hundred shows in that is great tip. Do your homework and, and finding a mentor, somebody that can go, well, wait a second. When I started, (laughs) this is what I did wrong. Here's how I do it. Yeah. Yeah, no, but I think, Lori, that's the role you're filling for, you know, all the women listening to this, right? It's incredible to have someone who has that experience and is looking back with hindsight and, and kind of sharing their their experience and their advice. It's tremendous. It, it really is my mission to bring a different level of professionalism to my career choice to be an esthetician. I know when I first started, people, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? And then I ended up at Sharon Osborne's house a few weeks later and all those friends were saying, wait, how did you get that gig? So I was like, That's great. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> she, yeah. She taught me how to run a business actually. 
when I would do something, she'd say, what the F are you doing? <laughs> so she was a good mentor. Well, that's for me. Great. Yeah, no, yeah. that's, and that's an honest mentor, which is also really important. Absolutely. Well, so people can find you on the show, the doctors. And also, why don't you give them your, your Instagram name so they can follow you on Instagram. <laughs> that's so kind. Um, my Instagram name is just at Dr. Sonia Batra. So D-R Sonia B-A-T-R-A. Well, Dr. Batra, I want to thank you so much again for your time, your knowledge, and your kindness. I really appreciate the conversation we had today. Thank you, Lori. Thanks so much for asking me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Have a great one. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning into the Beauty Biz Show. I hope this episode leaves you feeling inspired to build the beauty biz of your dreams. If you'd like to know more about how you can become a member of the Beauty Biz Club, the only professional success-based society designed to fuel your success by providing you with the ongoing resources that are needed to excel in the beauty industry, please visit beautybizclub.com. Again, that's beautybizclub.com. Club.com. Also, if you'd like a copy of my free report, Top 10 Secrets of Successful Beauty Biz Practitioners, please visit LoriCrete.com. 